Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we are set to continue our reflections into the book of Genesis. We are in chapter 25. We have been reflecting into Abraham and all of those stories that are tied to Abraham over the past couple months, really. We transition out from the narrative of Abraham and into the narrative of of Isaac and really Abraham's descendants, right? And we do so this evening with the birth of Esau and Jacob, as well as uh, Esau selling his birthright. Now, I want to use this evening to really get into one verse, (laughs) and that's verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Okay, so we're going to spend quite a bit of time with that verse that will allow us to some degree to talk about Elijah. But before we get into that, let us go ahead and read. Oh, let's see here. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to chapter 25. We will go ahead and read verses 19 to 33. Verses 19 to 33. These are the descendants of Isaac. These are the descendants of Isaac. What have we already said about that phrase? Every time you hear that phrase or a phrase like that, that is a formula, right, that introduces new phases of history and narrative in the book of Genesis. So, these are the descendants of Isaac. Abraham's son, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took to his wife, Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Patanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. And here you have verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Verse 22. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. All right, what's going on there? Just real quick here. Verse 22, uh, this struggling within the womb. Uh, the unborn twins are already wrestling for what? What have we been talking about over recent weeks? But this firstborn status. In so many ways, this really does anticipate that fraternal rivalry, rivalry between Jacob and Esau which of course comes to a head at the end of this narrative when the younger Jacob usurps the blessing and birthright from the firstborn Esau. So the twins are already wrestling in the womb. All right, verse 24. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came forth red, all his body like a hairy mantle. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth, and his hand had taken hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called 
Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter and a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was boiling pottage, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red pottage, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. Edom means, by the way, uh, red. Verse 31, Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You know, there are many things that could be said to these closing verses. One that strikes me is the fact that Jacob clearly is concerned about his pedigree, right? About who will follow him and that they will be blessed by God, where Esau doesn't care. And I think there is an implicit message to all of us this evening that we should be concerned about how God provides for those in our family line, right? This is why in righteousness and great fervency, we should be praying uh, for our line, praying for our, our children and grandchildren, that they indeed would be blessed by God. If all you care is about yourself, then be rest assured, my friends, if history has proven anything, just not biblical history, but our own family histories, if you take a closer look at it, then those who are directly related to us might come to know the fallout from your own sin. Uh, what am I thinking about here? Well, if you struggle with a particular addiction, right, your child might struggle with that very addiction. So be rest assured, my friends, what we do and how we spend our time will immediately impact those closest to us, and we should be mindful of that, okay? Very important. Now, I just talked about the importance of praying in righteousness with great fervency. This brings us, I think, to a New Testament passage that I want to talk about in relationship to chapter 25, uh, verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Isaac is a powerful intercessor, like his father. Why? Because he is a spiritual man. Let us go to James chapter 5, verses 16 to 17. Go ahead and turn there now. I'll, I'll give you a second. James chapter 5, verses 16 to 17. There we read, The prayer of the righteous man is powerful in its effects. Here James turns to Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain. So that's James chapter 5, verses 16 to 17. Now notice here what James is saying. This is a promise that prayer is what? Effectual, huh? God answers the fervent prayer of a righteous man. When we ask in faith, when our prayer comes from a heart of faith, 
a heart of trust, a heart of confidence, God answers. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 21, verse 22? Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it if, if you have faith. Mark chapter 11, verse 24. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. We all know the story of the Roman centurion. Lord, you don't need to go to my servant's house. All I need is your word, and my servant will be healed. And what does Jesus say? Boy, rare have I seen such faith. And to the Roman centurion, he says, go home, your servant is healed. Mm. How about 1 John chapter 5? Verses 14 to 15. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, my friends, what are all of these verses saying? These aren't promises that you can manipulate God with. Huh? <laughs> the Apostle John says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. What is the great prayer? What have we talked about before? All prayer moves towards that one great prayer, thy will be done. Those all important four words, thy will be done. True faith, my friends, is confidence in the power and the promises of God. Faith is not some kind of blind presumption, as if you could get God to do whatever you want him to do by simply asking him to do it. Genuine faith is grounded in God's promises and a true understanding of just not God, but God's will. Part of the prescription of prayer to varying degrees is tied to our understanding of how God works. Because if we don't have a certain understanding, then we're going to be disappointed if he says to us, not yet for whatever reason. I've shared the story that on one occasion, my son came to me and he wanted to pull weeds. He, he likes to do what dad does. And Dad likes to get his hands dirty a little bit outside. So he comes to me one day, he says, Dad, I'm going to go pull weeds over on the side. And, and I had to tell him, as painful as it was, no, I, I can't have you do that, son. He kind of looks at me strangely and says, what do you mean, Dad? I just said I'm going to go outside and pull weeds. I said, son, understand. It is your mother's birthday today, and I need your help around the house. Your request and your desire is good, but it is not the willed good for this moment Father knows best. Help me around the house. You can do that another day. Tomorrow, preferably. The same thing is going on in our relationship with God and our prayer with God. Once we go deeper in a relationship with God, we will better understand that out from our requests, what God's will is all about. But we won't understand that if we are caught up in getting God to do whatever we want him to do. Right? If you think that God is going to grant a prayer request that is inconsistent with his character, if you imagine that he is going to do something that contradicts his promises, if you delude yourself into thinking he will give you anything that is contrary to his word, it just won't work. If you think he's going to say yes to every prayer, it just won't work. Why? Because brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are a parent, then you know Sometimes, if not all the time, behind every no is an immeasurable greater yes. 
especially when it deals with children. We are children of God, and so sometimes God needs to say no to us. And the deeper we go in God, the more we will understand why he says no to us, because there is an immeasurable greater yes. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Brothers and sisters, in the end, it doesn't matter how much you have managed to convince yourself to believe in what you're praying for. That is not faith. That is presumption. Because if you do pray presumptuously, you're also praying what but selfishly. And I was just reading James chapter 5, verses 16 to 17. We can also turn to James chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. God, give me this, give me that. When you say give me, as opposed to Lord, speak, your servant is listening, all you're going to do in prayer is spin your wills. It won't work. So when Jesus tells us to pray in faith and, and not to doubt, this is not a lesson on positive thinking. Scripture isn't encouraging us to cultivate blind confidence that we can have whatever we desire. I fear today that we've turned prayer, this conversation with God, into this psychological positive thinking, some psychological exercise. Psychology is important. Don't get me wrong. Of course it is. I've talked about that a great deal. <laughs> but psychology is not prayer. It can certainly be spiritual, but it is not prayer. Prayer is conversation with God. We use our minds, right? Psychology is the study of the mind. In our prayer, we use our minds, but we also use our heart, where heart speaks to heart. So God's promises ought to encourage us to understand the will of God and ground our praying and our faith in the certainty of God's promises and in the steadfast faithfulness of his own righteous, holy, all-loving character. Have faith, my friends. Now, James says that when a righteous person prays earnestly and fervently, it avails much. So this is an encouragement to be faithful and fervent in our praying. It's a promise that we are not wasting time when we pray. Maybe for some of you out there, after you're done praying, think to yourself, boy, that was just a waste of time. No, if we are praying in righteousness and with a sense of purpose, never a waste of time. All right. Now, I also read verse 17 because James holds up a flesh and blood example for us in Elijah. And he could have held this example up really with Isaac. But I want to spend a little bit of time with Elijah, then go back to Isaac. James offers up Elijah because Elijah was always praying with what? But great fervency, with great righteousness. And God always answered. James says you can expect the same thing in your own experience if your praying is fervent and faithful. If you persist in prayer and if you pray according to the will of God and not out of all of your selfish motives. In other words, my friends, I think what James wants us to see is that if our faith, if our prayer is imbued with love, it will be everything that it needs to be. Remember, love is to will the good of the other for the sake of other. So if we are praying in love, then we are praying with that deeper sense of what it means 
to be present to other and to pray for other. Right? So he, he holds up for us this figure of Elijah. James says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And that's interesting. He, he wants us <laughs> to be present to the simple fact that Elijah wasn't supernatural. He was a fallen human being just like you and I. Subject to the same passions and, and, and fears and, and fits of depression, just like you and I. Does not Scripture record his failures as well as his triumphs? We're going to talk about that in a bit. But he was a righteous man, a man who sought to walk with God. Brothers and sisters, confidence in someone arises when you know that someone well, and that someone is always present to you, and not only responds to you when your time of need, but responds to you when you don't even ask. <laughs> when you don't even ask. What about this righteousness and, and holiness before we go any further? I'm just kind of mindful that we should probably speak to this a little bit further. What is righteousness? Well, in the Greek, righteousness is uprightness, to be an upstanding human being, right? It can also translate as holiness. Holiness. I was just talking about how a righteous man walks with God. Holiness, simply defined, is to walk in the presence of God. Holiness in the Hebrew translates as to be set apart. If you are walking in the presence of God, be rest assured you will be set apart from the world. How about fervency, uh, ardor, enthusiastic, that which is life-giving? Remember, enthusiasm comes from the Greek entheos, to bear God within, to be a God-bearer. <laughs> so in many ways, we could say, as we reflect into James chapter 5, verse 16, that if we are praying with fervency, we are praying in that kind of uh, joyful anticipation that God is going to come through for us. Have you ever prayed with someone where that someone was praying with this kind of expectation, this almost certainty that God is going to come through? That's James chapter 5, verse 16. Okay, this verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. It's interesting here that there's no record of that prayer in the Old Testament. Huh? I find that fascinating. Elijah first appears on the scene in, in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. And he simply announces to King Ahab in Ahab's own court that there would not be dew nor rain in Israel until he gave the word. James of course, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, informs us that that drought was a response to Elijah's prayer. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Those three and a half years of drought brought the whole nation <laughs> to its knees. And Elijah became known as the, as it has come to be known, as the great troubler of Israel. But as we know, when it was time to end the drought, as James chapter 5, 18 reminds us, he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Now, this is an episode in Israel's history that I, I think is well worth looking at because there's a fascinating contrast between how 
Elijah called down the fire and how he called down the rain. He had called down the fire in the most public way, but with a simple public petition to the Lord before all the people. The prayer for fire consists in just two verses. Uh, if you were to go to chapter 18, 1 Kings 18, verses 36 to 37, listen to this prayer. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Uh, so, so there was no dramatic pleading. And in fact, he did not even mention fire per se. The heart of the prayer is really a plea for what but the repentance of Israel, the simplicity and calm quietness of Elijah's prayer is really a stark contrast to all the, the, the screaming and, and writhing and, and bloody flesh-cutting that the priest of Baal had exhibited, right? When they were trying to in vain get their God to answer. And as we know, God answered Elijah's prayer for fire instantly, apparently without delay, and in the most dramatic fashion, sending a fire so hot that it evaporated even several barrels of water that Elijah had drenched his offering with. It was a spectacular demonstration of God's power in response to Elijah's earnest prayer of a single righteous man. Now, you'd think Elijah would call down the rain in a similar fashion, but that is not what happened. In the scene that follows the slaughter of the prophets, Elijah went up on Carmel alone with one of his servants and pleaded again and again for rain. This time, he, he went away from the crowd to pray. This time, the answer didn't come so immediately or so dramatically. In fact, when the answer did come, it appeared in the most insignificant way with the advent of a tiny cloud so far away that its appearance probably would have been enough to discourage most of us, <laughs> Right? But as we follow the story to the end, of course, we see that the rain finally falls in a way that very well may have been as dramatic as the falling of the fire, proving that in the end, God is, God is certainly no less powerful in the bestowing of his blessings than he is in the dispensing of his judgments. Brothers and sisters, the whole episode reminds us that God's blessings are reserved for those who pursue his promises with a patient faith, a, a tenacious faith. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, for some of us, yeah, it can seem like hard and, and even at points discouraging work, but this is what prayer is about. This episode, in many ways, is a great lesson about how we should pray with a steadfast heart, with great tenacity. And here, there is another point to be had with Elijah that very much brings us back to Isaac. And that is the prayer that comes with barrenness, when it appears that all is lost. It was in the aftermath of Elijah's brilliant victory in the contest with Jezebel that Elijah receives a message from Jezebel, right? Telling him of her murderous intentions. And it is here that we read, remember what I said earlier about Elijah? He was a man of our nature. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 3, we read that he was afraid. So what does Elijah do? 
he flees south into the wilderness of the desert. And there his mood is one of defeat and desolation to the point where he actually wants to die. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4, we read, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Elijah is about as low as he can be, and it is precisely then that God comes riding in and comes to his aid. What is going on here? We've talked about Elijah before. When our ego is confident in its own power and resourcefulness, it rarely reaches out to God. But when our ego is knocked around, wounded, powerless, it is then that God rides in. Elijah discovers that God is encountered when the activity ceases and the words stop, when the heart is sad and the stomach is filled with pangs of hunger, only when Elijah's mind and heart are finally empty of ambition, empty of, uh, of, of self-promotion, is God ultimately heard. Elijah was a man who learned through his barren experience, if you will, what it means to be single-hearted for God. Isaac's wife was barren. So his own experience of fatherhood then, of course, was also barren. Was his prayer filled with righteous faith? Was his prayer filled with fervency? We can be assured of that. But I, I would have to imagine it was also filled with an experience of the desert. And out from this desert did God come riding in to his aid. Isaac knew the promise that was bestowed upon his father from God. And he had confidence in that promise. He had confidence that this was God's will, that his wife would be with child. And so he prayed in righteousness and with great fervency. Amen. Amen. Let's close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.